Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 131. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our guest today, Dwight, has kindly agreed to talk to us about falconry. And I looked up a... um, a definition in the dictionary, so he can correct me if this is wrong. <laughs> it's the sport of hunting with falcons or other birds of prey, or the keeping and training of such birds. Dwight no longer raises birds of prey, so he didn't bring any falcons or hawks with him, but he came with falconry equipment. We'll do our best to describe each item. This should be a fun discussion, one Steve and I have been looking forward to. Thanks, Dwight, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to share. Uh, It's been a while since I've been in the sport, since about 2005. Uh, I was in it for about 17 years, um, long enough to learn a little bit about it. I guess we can just move on with what other information we want to discuss. We'll start at the beginning. What about falconry first captured your interest? Documentary, what, uh, what sparked that interest? Probably sometime in the mid-80s, um, I was working at a, a job, and uh, we had a new guy come on board. And I noticed one noon when I went out for lunch out the back of the shop, he drove an old, it was a Isuzu Trooper, and I could see the silhouette of what looked like a, a falcon or a hawk through the back window and uh, it really caught my attention so I uh, went back in the shop and I, I asked this new guy that had hired on uh, what was the deal what was he doing with this what what turned out to be a uh, I believe it was a prairie falcon in the back of his uh, Isuzu Trooper and he proceeded to explain to me that it was in fact a falcon and that he was a licensed falconer who could legally train and hunt these birds and it was something that just had fascinated me from the time I was a teenager when I had first seen falconry listed in the hunting regulations from the fishing game but I always thought oh that's probably a rich man sport you know something that I couldn't really get into but as I continued asking questions uh, to, of my friend, um, he proceeded to tell me, well, you know, it can be expensive, but if you're kind of handy with your, your skill set, uh, you can sometimes make some of the equipment that's necessary to keep and maintain the bird. So I just, uh, I began going out on his little hunts with him and his bird. And it just really intrigued me to see, see this uh, wild creature with this, uh, what looked like a bond between the falconer and the bird. And then plus this guy, he also used a dog with his to a lot of times flush the quarry because the falcons usually go after the winged quarry. So he would sometimes use the dog which was a German short hair, to go out and flush or hold point on these uh, wild birds that were out in the field so he could go in and flush them and uh, hopefully get a flight at this wild quarry with his bird. So it just took me a couple years before I decided to ask him to see if he would take me through whatever procedures were necessary to get involved in the sport of falconry. And so what does it take to get involved in falconry? Well, first of all, 
um, you have to be able to find someone who is what is considered a master class falconer. Uh, let me just sidestep here for a second and and just say that there are three classes in falconry as far as the, the levels that you are. Um, you have to serve a two-year apprenticeship under the tutelage of a master falconer. Um, but let me just interject in here that after you serve your two-year apprenticeship and you get the approval of your sponsor, the master falconer, um, he or she will write a letter for you to the fish and game advising them to advance you to the next stage of uh, the falconry level, which is a general falconer. And at the general level, you're uh, required to serve at least three years, you know, hunting actively and taking care of the raptor of your choice, the one that uh, fits, fits you best. And then after that five-year period, you will have put in a minimum of seven years. And at that point, you can legally become what's called a master falconer class. But again, you still have to have a written letter from your original sponsor to say that they have observed your process of, of what you've gone through through your time in falconry to where you are a competent and well-versed falconer in, in the art. So you have to find this master class falconer and they have to be willing to set aside that time for that two-year apprenticeship to, to guide you through the process of catching and training a bird, uh, learning about feeding. You've got to learn about the diseases the birds can get and how to treat the diseases. But that comes with some of the reading material that you're required to read to where you can go to the fishing game and you're required to take this uh, 100 question multiple choice test and you have to pass it with a minimum of 80 percentile. And I know that seems kind of high, but they want to make sure you know what you're doing before they turn you loose, you know, into capturing a wild bird and that just to know that you'll care for it properly. And uh, there is a lot of reading there. They usually recommend about, if I remember right, there were probably four or five books that you had to read during that time. Um, there is one main book. It's called North American Falconry and Hunting Hawks, and it's considered by most to be the Falconer's Bible. It has uh, pretty much exhaustive information in it so you can successfully be involved in and practice the sport of falconry. There's other things, too, that are involved, um, having the right housing facility for your bird. They use a lot of falconry terms, and the term for that housing is called a MUSE, M-E-W-S. Uh, you can look it up in a dictionary, and I'm not sure it has anything to do with birds, but that's what it's called in the falconry community. So you have to have this MUSE built to certain specifications. The fishing game will usually recommend a minimum size i believe when i got into it i think it was six foot by six foot by you want to have at least six foot tall ceilings on it and that's bare minimum um i believe my muse was six foot by eight foot the one that i had for the hawks that i had through the years it's good to uh, know that you can get an adequate food source for your bird, too. Um, they do eat raw meat, but there's some meats you can't feed them. You can't feed them raw bacon. It would make them sick. But foods such as beef heart is, is one that's kind of a staple in your training regimen because it's, it's a really dense meat and it's rich in iron and minerals and vitamins. And a chicken is okay. A lot of the falconers like to buy farm-raised quail to feed their birds because they're high in nutrients. Regarding the, uh, the legal part of falconry, uh, there are some licenses that are in involved. Um, after you have successfully passed the examination at the Fish and Game Department, you're required to, number one, make sure 
you buy a valid hunting license for the applicable state that you're living in. And then you also have to pay a fee for a falconry license that goes in conjunction with your hunting license. And then on top of that, uh, the sport is actually regulated by more than just the local fish and game authorities. It's also governed by uh, the Department of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I believe they're out of Portland, Oregon. And you're required to pay a fee to them. I, I believe it was an annual fee, just like the rest of your other fees, I believe, are annual. Don't quote me on that, but i that's what I think I remember. It's been a while since I've been in it. So once you do get those fees paid and you got all your proper documentation, then and once you have your your housing facilities, your muse built for your bird, then you can go out and hopefully have a successful trapping session with your sponsor. And that's something I I won't really go into here. The trapping, um, it's it's totally humane the way it's done. The bird is not injured uh, when it's captured, and they're handled uh, very gently when they are taken captive. And then, at that point, you begin the training process, which it can go anywhere. For some birds, respond really quickly to the training process. For some, it may take, I've heard of guys actually training a bird and have them out flying with them in a week, but that's a real rare, a rare case. Uh, Generally, it takes weeks up to, for even some birds, it might take a month and a half before they're trained and they accept your presence. Because when you capture the new bird, it's a wild creature and it doesn't want to be close to you. And I guess if you could say if they like you or not like you, I would say they, they don't like you because they're scared of you. So you just you have to go through a, a training process and it's all it's based on a food bond. You, you get the bird in a dark, quiet setting, subdued lighting because they are intimidated by a human face so close to them when they're used to seeing them at a distance. But you always have food on hand. The bird is usually sitting on a uh, leather gauntlet glove. It's usually a thick glove that will protect your your forearm because their talons are very sharp and their feet are very strong. So you have them tethered to your glove and you offer them food as often as you can. And once you break the ice and you get them to take that first bite of food, you've kind of cleared the first hurdle because usually the trust will start to develop that the bird will realize you're not there to to hurt it or threaten it, but you're actually there to provide food for it. Then you you move on to the next step of training after that. Uh, You know, once you get them used to you, you can actually start taking them outside and going through uh, various training processes to to get them. You're not teaching them to hunt because they already know how to hunt, but you're teaching them how to accept you in the setting that you're going to be in when you get out in the field. You brought up a question for me. Uh, Is it one bird then at a time, or do you have... Like, what if one ha- something happens to one bird, you have to start all over again? Well, that's a good question. Uh, as an apprentice, you're allowed to have only one bird at a time in your possession. If something did happen and, say, you were out hunting your bird and it was killed by, say, a fox or a skunk or a coyote or something that you didn't see, or even by another raptor, you would be allowed one replacement bird. I believe it was per calendar year, if I'm not mistaken. So you could replace the bird, but you would, you know, you would have to redo the training and go through that again. But uh, as an apprentice, yeah, just one bird. Once you complete your apprenticeship and become a general class falconer, you are allowed to have two birds in your possession legally they can be pretty much uh any any species that's legal for taking and sometimes you have to check with fish and game and fish and wildlife service to see which ones 
are, are legal for you to have. And then once you get to the master class, you are allowed to have three birds in your possession. But some, some of the falconers that I knew in the past had opted to get a raptor rehab license also. So if they do that on top of having their master class falconry license, they can have numerous birds, multiple. I, I, I don't know if there's a limit or not. Uh, I've known of some rehabbers that have had 10, 12 birds on their premises rehabbing them. But as far as legality, yeah, that's that's what I remember. And honestly, I don't see how some of these guys have handled three birds at a time because I've known some. <laughs> so it's a uh, you got a pretty full basket if you've got uh, more than three birds anyway. It's a big responsibility to feed and care for them. Do birds have personalities like dogs do? Uh, Cats don't, of course. They're just cats. (laughs) But do birds have different ways of interacting with you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, They do, in fact, have different personalities. When the fish and game decided the types of birds that an apprentice could have, I think they weighed that, and it it was a big consideration on which species they said the apprentice could have. They did want species that have a very trainable personality that are are generally docile once they become tamed down somewhat with the falconer. Uh, And the red-tailed hawk is one of those. They're a very trainable bird. They're smart. They accept people quite readily, along with the kestrel, the, the small little sparrow hawk, they call them. You see them sitting all over the place on telephone lines and wires out in the country and even in the city. But they train up pretty fast. My first red-tailed hawk was my favorite. I had that bird for four years, and she became very tame during that fourth year to where when I would go to pick her up out of the muse to go hunting, she would actually chirp at me like a almost like a dog whining to go hunting because uh, she anticipated that she was going to go out and and catch prey she was just uh, had a wonderful personality just really laid back and mellow but a ferocious hunter years later after I had lost that particular bird it had flown off when I had I had flown it at too high a hunting weight and it just decided it didn't need me in the picture anymore and uh, it was my mistake it was my mistake but I never did get that bird back and I trapped another one years later and she was a pill she was very difficult to train she had a quite a different personality than the first red-tailed hawk that I had she was very stubborn she just always wanted to fly off the glove all the time when I had her secured to the glove. She was just, she didn't want to stay on the glove. In between the red-tailed hawk, the first red-tailed hawk, and the second one, uh, I was, in falconry, they do what's called a transfer of a bird. If someone else has a bird that for some reason or another they, they want to get rid of, uh, they can't just turn them loose into the wild. This particular bird, because it was a, it was a warm weather bird that is known uh, as a Harris hawk. It's a kind of a warm weather hawk. They're down around Mexico, Arizona, Texas area, and so they don't do real well in the cold weather, in the whole cold climate up here in Idaho. But that being said, I had a guy that I knew that was in the club, the falconry club who had three Harris Hawks, and he had his hands full with them. And he asked me if I was interested in taking this one bird off his hands. So I said, sure. I, I was without a bird at the time. I had lost my first red tail, as I said earlier. And there's no money exchange. You cannot sell a captive-raised bird twice. It, uh, they can be sold one time by a captive, licensed captive breeder. But once it's sold, it can never be sold again. The red-tailed hawk was considerably bigger than the Harris hawk, you know, weight-wise and just uh, physical dimensions. But this Harris hawk that was transferred to me happened to have a very 
cranky personality, and, and it was it was just ornery all the time. It would get really frustrated if it didn't catch on its first flight out in the wilds, trying to capture a rabbit out in the field. And it would just, uh, it, w- it was very uh, vocal and verbal. It would screech at me when it would miss its prey. And ultimately, I, I had this bird for, I think, about two, two and a half years. And I ended up having to get rid of this bird because I had a about a five-year-old son with me who was out hunting with, he, uh, he and my wife were out in the field. And this particular Harris hawk had not scored and caught the game that it was pursuing. So it got really frustrated and it decided to take it out on my son. So it flew away from me. My son was uh, over near my wife, who was about uh, 200 yards to my right. And I could see the bird um, was angry and it was just beelining for my son. And it it flew up to my son and reached out with his talons and grabbed the front of my son. Thankfully, he had on a loose-fitting flannel shirt, and so his talons bound to the shirt. It did scratch my son's chest a little bit through the shirt, but thankfully he was not injured at all other than just some super, superficial scratches. And it was pretty much at that point that I decided uh, this bird had too many... Um, Oh, for lack of a better term, uh, hand-me-down bad traits. It had just gotten that way by being with this this original person that owned this bird. And a lot of times that's the way it is when you transfer a bird. You're transferring problems or, or you know, uh, personalities that can become a problem later later on. So, yeah, I got rid of it. And that's, that's about the time I decided to trap another red-tailed hawk. And that one was an adventure also. We had a dog that had problems like that. It would, although not a bird, it it would be fun and would be very playful and then would turn on you. Turn on the some neighbor kids and our kids. And the vet said, its problem is between its ears. <laughs> so maybe your bird <laughs> yeah you're talking about losing birds how do you get the birds to come back well some of the falconers they fly their birds with what we call transmitters it's a small transmitting device that's attached to one of the legs it's about the size of a firecracker and it's got a little whip wire antenna on it about probably six to eight inches long it can transmit a signal for up to about a 30 mile radius to a receiver that it's a handheld receiver that you can chase the bird down usually what you do is if you lose a bird in a certain area you usually put word out to some of the other falconers in the community that you lost a bird You, you call them or you go directly to see them and you let them know, and most of them are familiar with the birds in the area that belong to the falconers. So word of mouth is probably one of the best ways to, to let people know that you've lost your bird. And generally, your bird, unless it's a falcon, which they will range long distances sometimes from where they were lost. But the red-tailed hawks, um, like the ones that I had, they usually would not range very far from where they were lost. So the way you retrieve them is the best time to catch a hawk, even if, if you're just catching one from the wild or recapturing one that you've lost, is morning time because they've sat all night. It's been cold. They've burned up all the food from the day before. They're going to be hungry. So you have in your bag of falconry tricks, um, you may have a like a a rabbit that your your bird has caught previously. And it's like a thawed, thawed out rabbit tied to a little tether. And you can go out to where if you know where the bird is, if you can see it with your binoculars, you can take this rabbit and actually swing it around. Uh, because they're attracted to motion 
I'll, I'll give you, for instance, I did lose my first red tail twice, and I got her back twice. It was the third time I didn't get her back when I made the big mistake of flying her at too high a weight. But that's what I did the first time. I had a cottontail rabbit that she had caught previously, and I had, it was a thought-out rabbit. You don't want to be feeding them frozen food. And I went out to where one of the falconers had called me and let me know that they had seen my bird out south of town. So I went out to that vicinity, and sure enough, I went out early one morning, and I looked up in the tree in the binoculars, and there she sat. And I could tell by her uh, body language that she was hungry. They have a certain demeanor early in the morning. I mean, you can just watch them. They're looking around. They're, they're bobbing their head up and down, up and down, looking for things to catch and eat. And uh, I went out up under the big tree, and I called her name, and she spun around on the branch. So I knew that she was still zoned into me somewhat. And I swung the rabbit around and just threw it out on the ground and, and stepped back about 15, 20 feet. And I just kind of watched over my shoulder as she bobbed her head. And next thing I know, she's swooping down and she lands beside the rabbit, the, the dead carcass. She was definitely hungry, but she was also a little skittish because she had actually been gone for five weeks she had been gone, but she was still hungry. So she came down and she started grabbing at the rabbit, grabbing and grabbing. It's called footing, that they, they foot their food. You know, they, that's how they kill their food is they, they just keep grabbing it and they'll let go and they'll grab it with the other foot and they just, they foot their, the prey and they'll, they'll kill it that way. But anyway, she started footing this rabbit and they're they're threatened when they see your face looking at their eyes. Um, that's just part of their wild demeanor. Is uh, so I knew that I had to approach without looking up at her. So I was crawling on my belly, literally up to the rabbit, and I just kind of kept looking over the tops of my glasses as best I could to see what she was doing and. Uh, she got a little bit antsy one time, like she was going to step up, step off to the side and fly off. So um, I just stopped. I just froze and waited till she started footing the rabbit again. And then I waited till she started to actually tear into the, the carcass of the, of the rabbit and started feeding. And I was able to just slowly inch my hand up toward her foot where she had a we have what's called jesses. They're long leather straps that are attached to their legs. And that's how you keep control of the bird. Uh, I was able to grab one of the jesses. And about the time I grabbed it, she saw she was caught and she tried to fly away. But I had just enough of the jess that I get her back in control, put her on my glove. And it only took a few days just to get her back to where she was used to me again. And I was hunting within a week after that successfully and had... Gosh, probably at least a year, year and a half of hunting with her after that first loss. And there is another part of the training process when we use what's called a lure. And what it is, it's, a, it's basically a, a weighted lead bag. It's weighted because you want it heavy enough that they can't grab it and fly off with it. But to this lure, you have these strong cords of nylon cording like like parachute cord or something like that or, or or boot laces and you have food tied to it and in part of your training process you use this lure to reinforce the food bond and the connection with this bird so you can swing this lure around in the training and it, and they they get to where they they associate food with you swinging that lure and then you let the the lure land on the ground and they fly down, they land on the lure, and they start eating the meat that's tied to the lure. So it's, it's kind of a, like a backup way to get your bird when it is lost. It's a safety mechanism, basically. Quick question, should ask you this earlier. When you say your red tail hawk, you flew her at too high a weight? 
did you say it was her weight? She was too heavy, or what was that mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, for that I should backtrack to when, when you're trapping a wild bird, and once you successfully trap your bird and you get it home, one of the first things you do is you weigh the bird because you know they were hunting for food, eagerly hunting for food at that weight. And so that, that's kind of the point that you use to determine what the best flying weight is for your bird. So I'll, I'll give you, for instance, when I trapped my first red-tailed hawk, she weighed about 39 ounces. You sometimes use the rule of thumb as that's kind of the mid mid-range and you might go down to say 35 ounces and you just you watch their body language when you present food to them how they respond to it you can just see the eagerness of how much they want to want to eat by their body language and and I actually flew that same red tail as high as I believe I flew her as high as 45 ounces but it seemed like the magic number was somewhere around uh, 38 to 40 ounces. So the time that I had lost this bird for the first time, I, I just, I got impatient waiting for her weight to drop. Because what you do is, I, I always compare it when, when people ask me about the weight thing. Some people think, oh, that's cruel. Well, it's not when you think about, I always compare it to like an Olympic athlete. An Olympic athlete performs best at a certain weight. It's their, their, their optimal performance when they're at that weight. And it's the same with the birds. They, they fly best. They have the best response to catching food at a particular weight. And, and there is a, a trust issue that's, that's involved there, too, because, again, I had flown this particular bird at a much higher weight than when I had trapped her. But the conditions were just right. Um, everything was, in a way, kind of a controlled situation. But it's when the unexpected happens that you, uh, you, you lose control of the bird because it's all based on a food bond. The bird uh, has been trained to just basically accept you into the hunting scene with them. In the training process, you're teaching it that you're going to provide an opportunity for them to either catch food or that you are going to feed them directly. So it's, it's basically a positive reinforcement and a, a trust that you're going to feed them. Thank you. This might be a good time to talk about some of the items that you brought with you that are associated with falconry. So let's talk about this strange contraption first. Looks like a little miniature Quonset hut, maybe about 15 inches wide and made of wire and got, I wouldn't call it furry, but kind of like nylon loops. Okay, he's saying they're called slipknot nooses. And so it's not very big. I had pictured, you know, a big cage they'd walk in and the door would clamp over them. But I don't think that's how this particular thing works. So tell us about it. Yeah, in the falconry community, um, they have all these terminology that you learn when you're, when you're reading all these books for your uh, examination that you take at the fish and game. But the most often, there, there are multiple types of traps that can be used to catch hawks, but the most common is called a, it's a balchatry, which is a, a Middle Eastern term, but just for short, we just call it a BC. It's basically a, a, a little cage built out of hardware cloth, half-inch uh, gaps between the wires on the hardware cloth. And then, as she said, it's, it's shaped kind of like a Quonset hut, and it's weighted. It's weighted with rebar and some metal, so when the bird gets caught on the trap, it can't fly off with it. It has a little uh, spring door on it that you just go to the pet store and you pick up a mouse that you could buy for a couple bucks. It, they have them there for feeding snakes and whatever else they do with them. Some people have them for pets, but 
the mouse is put in there or a gerbil or whatever you use, it's, it's, it's never injured because it's safe inside the cage. Uh, it can't be gotten to. So it's uh, placed inside there and you usually go with your sponsor with another person out in the wilds where you where there are known areas of the types of hawks that, or falcons that you want to trap. And so you put in this uh, a couple mice and you usually go out in the morning driving to tell you spot a suitable bird and usually you have your passenger open the door and you drive close to the hawk and then you have your passenger slip it out into the barrel pit beside the road and a lot of times they're dirt roads so this uh, bc trap usually will just kind of slide from the momentum of the car and it'll usually slide down into the low area of the barrel pit and you just continue driving on and you try to get yourself probably a couple hundred, 300 yards away from where you saw the bird sitting on the telephone pole or the tree. And you just turn your car around and you shut it off and you just get out your binoculars and you just you watch the bird, the hawk that uh, is going to be hungry because it's in the morning and it's burned up all its food reserves from the day before. So it's going to be looking for something to eat. So it will usually spot those mice running around inside that little trap. And their eyesight is very keen. They compare them to eight power binoculars. And being hungry, a lot of times they will swoop down immediately to to check out, oh, this is a food source. This might be my breakfast, you know. Or they may just be cautious. I've, I've had birds that will fly down and they'll, they'll swoop over the top of the trap just to check it out. And then they'll swoop back up to the next telephone pole in line. And they might do that several times because they're probably trying to figure out how to get to those, those mice that are inside that little cage. But they can see them plainly through the wire. So the idea is to get the hawk to where it uh, pretty much sets its caution aside and decides to land on top of the trap. The trap has probably between 40 and 50, 20 pound, 20 to 25 pound monofilament nooses tied to the hardware cloth. And, and they're, if you can imagine, they're loops of about two to three inches in diameter, and they have a special slip knot that's tied on them. So what happens is the bird come, the hawk comes down to try and grab the mice through the hardware cloth, and if it gets a toe wrapped around one of those nooses and pulls away, the nooses will cinch up on the toe. It doesn't hurt the hawk. The hawk can't release it, but the falconer can release it quite easily once it gets to the bird. But you can usually tell by the mannerism of the bird if it has been caught with its, by its toes because it'll be trying to fly off to the side and get away. And that's at the point that you, you, know, you zoom up in your car as fast as you can and usually throw a towel over the bird to keep it from breaking feathers or, or hurting itself. And uh, at that point, you, you release the toes from the nooses. And generally, you carry some different size leather hoods with you to fit the type of bird that you're trying to catch. And, and usually, you just first thing you do is, uh, once you get the towel wrapped around it, is put uh, one of the hoods on the bird, the one that looks like it fits the best. And what happens is it's kind of like putting it in the dark because it fits snugly and it just it makes everything dark. It would be like putting on a blindfold on people, a really good blindfold. At that point, it's usually good to have someone helping you transport the bird back to your house after you've caught it. And at that point, the first first thing you do when you get home is you, you weigh the bird because you know that that bird was actively seeking food to catch when it landed on that trap. So, so that's, that's kind of the starting point where you decide at what point, at what weight do you want to have that bird hunt and hunt effectively and actively? So how in the world would you weigh a wild bird that's very unhappy about being captured? What you do is 
you have a good scale to begin with. Um, I prefer, it's called a triple balance beam scale. They're very accurate because you don't have to have them calibrated like you do electronic ones. And you just use counterweights to weigh. And, and you just make sure you have a some kind of a platform. Most of the balance beam scales have a platform, a little round platform that you can, if you have the bird, uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put the bird in a woman's nylon stocking because it will kind of keep them from jamming their wings and breaking their feathers. And then you also have the bird hooded so and you also sometimes you'll put a like a tennis ball in their foot because they're grabbing as soon as their eyes are covered up and it's dark for them inside that hood uh, you have to be really careful because uh, they can really hurt you if they grab you with their foot because they can they can lock on and and really draw blood from your hands or your arms or so the best thing we usually do when we catch a, a fresh bird is we carry some tennis balls with us and we just touch the tennis ball to their foot and they grab it that's the first thing they do and we carry just some masking tape to tape the the toes onto the tennis ball so they won't come off so when you get home you'll usually lay your bird on the little um, flat platform on the balance beam scale and you weigh it you find out what that weight is and then at a later point, you can weigh the towel and or the stocking that you have wrapped around. You can weigh the hood. You can weigh the tennis balls. Subtract that from the weight, and that gives you the proper weight of what the bird was when you captured it. That's very interesting. All right, Dwight, I am holding a couple of leather hoods. I'm not sure, we're joking around here about how this one, the bigger uh, one of the two, looks like an alien Dumbo, but the trunk is the, the handle. This just an odd thing, but it is made from kangaroo leather, and it is so intricate. It's how it's made. Um, for, I'm not even sure how a machine would do this, but these are handmade. Why don't you tell us about them? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I tell people that falconry is is more than just a sport. It's it's an art. And if you're going to make a lot of your equipment, you have to be sort of artsy in some ways and have some dexterity in your hands and good hand-eye coordination uh, to be able to manufacture some of the equipment needed in falconry. And the hood, the hoods that you put on your birds is a good example of that. And, uh, well, to start with, he had said that it's made out of kangaroo leather, and maybe you might be asking why kangaroo leather. Well, the reason is it's ounce for ounce, it's probably one of the strongest leathers for the thickness of it. When you think about a kangaroo and, you know, how active it is in, in its native Australia and New Zealand, how uh, it's very, very flexible skin, yet it's, it's really extremely strong, and it doesn't have a lot of the stretch that some of the cowhide and and uh, even pig leathers and some of the other types of leather so it's a pretty stable leather it's really strong it cuts easily but regarding the hood you might be asking well why do you have to have a hood what it does is the hood is basically a, a covering for the bird over its head that kind of puts it in a quiet zone it'd be like you going into a quiet bedroom, you pull all the curtains and drapes down and you darken it in the room where you just want to rest and you want things kind of quiet and to be unimpeded by movements and whatnot. And so this is used on the bird to kind of keep it quiet. Uh, number one, while you're transporting it, say from your house to out where you're going to hunt with the bird. When you have your bird secured to a perch or, or in a carry box or however you transport it, uh, you want that bird to be quiet. You don't want it to be jamming around, trying to jump off the perch um, and breaking feathers. It's like when you put the hood on them, it just quiets them down. And so they're pretty much going to just stay put on the perch once they have the hood on. And also when you first catch the bird from the wild, 
you definitely want a hood to put on the bird to keep it quiet because uh, it, they can really stress out if they see things around them during their transport home that, that might they might deem a threat to them and they may you know just stress out and and uh, you just don't want them injuring themselves so uh, it's, it's just basically a way to quiet them down and as uh, Steve was saying I guess if you've never seen a hood the best way to describe it would be something like if you can imagine having a, a long stocking cap that you put on your head and you just pull it all the way over all the way down to where it touches your shoulders. And, uh, you know, if it's a dense weave, it would kind of darken things for you. The difference would be this is made of leather, and it also has a particularly shaped opening for the beak where the beak can go through comfortably. It, it's usually like a almost a triangular opening in the front of the hood. Uh, where the beak can stick out and, and where the bird the bird could actually still feed with this hood on. It's pretty rounded, um, not unlike a, a gladiator helmet, you know, from the Roman times or something like that. And it pretty much covers the whole head. It does have some little straps in the back known as braces. The short straps open the hood. The long ones close the hood. And it, it has just kind of a nice little slip joint in the leather that allows it to close and stay closed. And then when you open it, it stays open. And it also, on the very top, it has what's called a top notch, which is basically just a little handle that you can grab with your thumb and forefinger to put the hood on the bird if you want to quiet your bird down. And hoods have been used for hundreds maybe even thousands of years and um, I personally have known of some hood makers here in the area that have gotten in the thousands of dollars from Arabic sheiks who uh, practice the sport of falconry and they stay in touch with a couple of the hood makers around this area because they make really ornate beautiful hoods some of them even have precious and semi-precious jewels attached to them. Some of them have really fine lacy top notches on them, exotic feathers. So it, it can be a lucrative business if you know what you're doing and if, if you're into making those uh, really fancy looking hoods. For me, I, uh, I just like the, the plain Janes, just <laughs> the ones that are very uh, practical and functional. One other thing I just want to say is before someone does get into the art of making the hoods, they have to realize that there are uh, numerous sizes and shapes of hawks and falcons. They can vary tremendously in size from very, very small to you know, pretty good size, uh, you know, some of them maybe three and a half, four inches across, you know, at their widest point. So you have to be aware of that and have the right molds. They're uh, usually like a hardwood mold or a, a cast resin mold that's in the shape of the skull of the particular bird that you want to make the hood to fit. Wow, Dwight, super interesting stuff. And I'm sure we could talk for hours, and Steve and I both will have more questions. But we are out of time. So before you go, uh, in case we have listeners who are fascinated by what you've said and want to know more about falconry or how to become a falconer, can you give them some ideas? Sure. The starting point for me would be maybe contact a local fish and game department, uh, whatever state or province or whatever you're in, there's, there's bound to be some kind of a governing authority over the fish and wildlife in that area. A lot of times they have a roster of the people who are licensed and uh, you know, who have, who have bought the falconry licenses along with their hunting licenses. And uh, I'm not sure if they would share that information, but to me, that would be a starting point to just contact them and see if they would be willing to 
let you know of any falconry clubs or groups associated with falconry in the area where you live. And hopefully they could just at least steer you to a connection because I'm not sure what it's like if, if you live in, um, you know, England or somewhere in European country or wherever. I don't know what your governing body would be, but you would know that better than I would. And I guess you just have to do some legwork and maybe look on websites, try to get some leads that way. And I did mention that there is a book. It's one of the books that you have to read to prep for your 100-question exam at the Fish and Game Department. It's called North American Falconry and Hunting Hawks. And I think it's written by uh, Hal Webster and Frank Beebe. Uh, One of the guys is a Canadian guy, and the other guy is uh, an American guy from the United States. Uh, I think both of them have have passed. They wrote this book years ago, but it has a wealth of information because they do call it the Falconry Bible on capturing, training, feeding, you know, (laughs) troubleshooting with your bird. If there's some kind of a, if you suspect a disease, it's got a lot of diseases that you can look for and what the, the cures are and the known medications and drugs that can be used to help cure some of the diseases. And, you know, like with people, there are some avian diseases that are incurable once once you get them. But this book, it's it's a pretty good book for helping you through all the bumps and twists and turns that you might face should you choose to get into falconry. I will say... I've said this over and over, and I'll say it again. It is a sport of dedication. You have to be patient. You have to have some skill sets to create some of the equipment, but you can purchase some of the equipment that you need in falconry that are listed actually as advertisements in the back end of this North American Falconry and Hunting Hawks book. So weigh it out and uh, make your decision. And... uh, That's about what I can say. (laughs) That sounds like um, plenty of information for someone to get started. So we appreciate you taking the time to come over and share your wealth of information with us. And I'm going to be watching the skies. (laughs) See if I can tell a hawk from a falcon. She's our naturalist around here. I can't tell a bug from a bird. Thanks, Dwight, for coming. It's been really interesting. That's all for now. We trust you enjoyed this episode of Let Me Tell You a Story. Remember, you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.